In the spring and summer of 2020, David Saltz was on a mission. Without exaggerating, I went to every Walmart, every Target. I went to dollar stores, hardware stores. It was almost as if it was some sort of surreal joke being played on me. This was no joke, and he was not alone. I would run into people doing the same thing, looking at these bare shelves and standing back and squinting. And then I would say, where is all the cat food? And the person would look over at me with these big eyes and go, I don't know what in the heck is going on here. It wasn't just cat food. All kinds of pet food had been in short supply. And your pet's supply chain troubles start all the way, well, at the beginning. I'm Sonari Glinton. On this episode of Now What's Next, an original podcast from Morgan Stanley, how a shortage of raw ingredients could change what our pets eat and what we eat in years to come. Hey, tiger. You hungry? You want some food? David Saltz is an IT professional. He lives in Auburn, Massachusetts. That's about an hour west of Boston. He lives there with his two cats, Frankie, who's not too particular. If I threw some dirt and gravel on the floor, he'd eat it. And then there's Tiger. She was a kitten when David brought her home. Uh, So I raised my daughter as a single father. And a couple of days after my daughter finished kindergarten, as her reward for being such a super student, we got Tiger. Well, my daughter is in college now, and Tiger probably always bonded more with me, to be honest. We've been through a lot. 16 years is a lot of time together. Over the years, Tiger lost some teeth and had trouble eating dry food. And after trying out many, many brands, David found a wet food Tiger would actually eat. If I dare give her anything else, she may, may take a bite or two of it. More often than not, however, she quite literally will turn her nose in the air almost like a cartoon cat, turn tail and walk away. It's almost, almost enough to make you laugh. Almost, almost. But it wasn't so funny the spring of 2020 when David couldn't find Tiger's favorite food anywhere. So what the heck was going on? And in many cases, what is still going on? As we've learned in this series, There's rarely a single supply chain problem behind all these shortages. In the case of pet food, canned pet food in particular, it started with demand. A lot of people got pets during the pandemic. In April and May of 2020, there was a 250% increase in Google searches on cat and dog adoptions. Now, those searches translated into about a 7% growth in pet ownership overall. It's another example of unprecedented buying that stressed the supply chain. All those pets had to be fed. Chewy.com, a website for pet food and accessories, saw sales go up almost 50%. But other factors played a role as well. Labor shortages at manufacturing plants, not enough truck drivers to move food and ingredients around, a shortage of aluminum to make the cans, not to mention competition from an unexpected source that led to one of the biggest issues, a shortage of raw ingredients, something we'll get into in a moment. But David wasn't thinking about all that when he looked for Tiger's favorite food in those early pandemic days. I exhausted visiting every potential brick-and-mortar store, and I'm just going to estimate and say within 15 to 20 miles of my house. 
Tiger's a member of my family. And during 2020, because it wasn't quite the year from hell enough for all of us, I actually also lost a couple of other pets. We lost uh, our dog and we lost another cat. So add that on top of me. Without being able to provide Tiger, and let's face it, sustenance, I, I felt completely helpless. Every now and then he'd find a case of 24 cans, about enough to feed Tiger for maybe 12 days, but then there'd be nothing again. And he set up stock alerts and checked the manufacturer's website, and he even wrote them directly. Maybe they can tell me, hey, you know what? We did have a factory shut down for three months, but it just opened up last week, so you can expect that it'll be back in your stores soon. When David heard back, the company directed him to specific stores nearby that should have had Tiger's food in stock. They didn't. Defeated, he decided to post to Reddit. Asking the world, anybody else in the same boat as me? And a lot of people were. I got replies from different parts of the United States, uh, people geographically very distant from me, speaking about, in general, wet cat food in general. None of us knew what was going on. None of us really had an answer. Pet food shells were never completely empty, but certain flavors or brands could be really hard to come by or would surface unpredictably. David found the stock got a bit better at the start of the year, but still. I just cannot find a steady, a reliable supply. The brand that makes Tiger's Food was definitely not the only company dealing with these shortages. And Dana Brooks knows why. Absolutely. I'm Dana Brooks, president and CEO of the Pet Food Institute in Washington, D.C. Dana's had an interesting life. She grew up on a catfish farm and got a degree in agriculture. She moved to D.C. over two decades ago to represent farmers. But pets have always been a big part of her life, and she's seen firsthand how really important they can be. My mom was really struggling with the loss of my dad and what motivated her to get up out of bed and to just truthfully to be alive was a pet. That's true for so many of us. Dana had expected to represent farmers for the rest of her life until an opportunity came up at the Pet Food Institute, an industry group of pet food makers. The night before my final interview, my mom called and she said that her dog was not well. And when I got off the phone with my mom, I was like, that's my why. I want to work there because nutrition, good health, makes our pets live longer lives and it's because of a pet that's made my mom live a longer healthier happier life given your interest and your desire to help folks out i mean how has the last 18 months been for the pet food industry it has been a challenging time for us and just like in human food we've experienced the same supply chain challenges logistics ingredient supply Ingredient supply. Let's zero in on that wobbly link in the supply chain when it comes to pet food. There are a lot of ingredients. And Dana says it's important to remember that while humans can eat junk food and then balance it out later with healthier food. Everything that goes into that dog or cat food in the can has to meet the nutritional needs, complete and balance for your pet. So what is in a complete and balanced meal for a pet? Now I'm holding a can of dog food and the label says beef, chicken, animal liver, meat byproducts, dried carrots, dried peas, potato starch, flavor, salt, vitamin, minerals, water. So let's start at the beginning. Meat. 
Almost a quarter of livestock agriculture goes towards pet food. Yep. And the meat industry was hit hard by the pandemic. COVID shut down meatpacking plants, closed restaurants and hotels. And those closures, believe it or not, had a direct impact on the raw ingredients that were needed for pet food. It wasn't that the meat wasn't available. It was that the manufacturers had to change the way they processed the meat from being restaurant style or larger food service to home packaging. Because we shifted from dining out to dining in and that created demand shock in the meat industry, which rippled over to pet food. So let's break down this part of the supply chain. A lot of meat products are typically channeled through restaurants and large scale food services. But during the pandemic, People ate at home. You know it, you did it. People started stocking up, I did. And actually, we hoarded cheaper and easier to prepare meats like ground beef, pork chops, and chicken breasts. That shift changed the cuts of meat that were available to pet food processing plants. And those plants weren't equipped to handle them. We may have to change out our manufacturing practice to take a different cut of the product to make sure that it can be processed in the same likeness as what was before. And that was an extreme disruption. Changing something on an assembly line or a manufacturing line can cause huge delays. You don't change an assembly line on a dime. But it wasn't just a shift in demand that shocked the meat industry. The labor supply changed as well. There was enough meat, but workers to process it got sick. Plants closed. In May 2020, beef and pork processing was down nearly 40% over the year before. Labor shortages ricocheted from plants to transportation to warehousing and beyond. And then there are all the problems associated with one of the most important meats for humans and pets. Chicken. Chicken, chicken, and chicken. <laughs> you know, chicken is very good for our pets. They get the protein. They also get the, you know, there's fat. It's a good product. But what happened was getting the chicken that we needed, it was a massive problem. Demand for chicken soared and reserves. Yes, there are chicken reserves are at the lowest levels in a decade. The supply of chicken was down in part because, well, extreme weather. Storms and record cold in the Midwest and South wiped out chicken crops and knocked out power in local processing plants. And then to pile on to all of this, there was a shortage of truck drivers, more expensive feed and shutdowns at plants. All of it made a hard time even harder. My heart hurts for the farmers, especially I'm from Arkansas, so we're a big poultry state, that when they couldn't get their product to market, they just lost their crop, you could say. And it's not like they could flip a switch and turn it back on. We've got to breed again. Obviously, this affected the food that we eat as well, not just for our pets. I think a majority of people in the United States really didn't see that connection. Agriculture, human food, and then pet food. The impacts ripple throughout the supply chain, and it gets more complicated when you factor in the ingredients that often come from far away. The minerals or some of the vitamins that are required, those, the, the bigger challenge for us is just getting them into the United States. So that will go back to our shipping and transportation challenges. 
And then there are also tariffs on some of those ingredients, the minerals and amino acids. So not only is it hard to get the ingredients, it's getting more expensive to make the pet food. Our ingredient prices have gone up two to three and sometimes four times pre-pandemic levels. So we are sourcing, but we're paying a price for it. If you're my mom, who has a cat and a dog, and she's already complaining about the price of the pet food. I mean, are you passing that on to consumers or how do you? That's definitely not one-to-one. We're trying not to, but in some cases you just have to. Our margins are getting tighter. We want to make sure we have choice out there to meet anybody's pocketbook. And that brings us to another ingredient on this label, flavor. We don't often think of flavor as an added ingredient, but in the pet food industry, the flavor often comes from fats and oils that are rendered from meat. And Dana says these fats and oils are now in high demand. We're going to be competing against the renewable energy sector, specifically renewable diesel. That's right. Some of the ingredients that make your pet's foods tasty and nutritious, those same fats and oils will get used to make biodiesel. It's cleaner, it is more efficient, and there are refineries that are lined up to go online, I think in the next year. And when that happens, we're gonna see a significant shortage in fats and oils in the United States. You can make biodiesel by combining alcohol with vegetable oil, animal fat, or recycled cooking grease. But because we consider a lot of animal fat not fit for human consumption, that makes it substantially cheaper than vegetable oil as an ingredient for biodiesel. Dana gets the need for renewable energy sources, but she says the impending competition for ingredients has her worried. And it's not that we're not willing to pay more for the product. We have concerns that the product won't be there. Dana believes that there are big changes to come, including new ingredients. Some of our companies are also in the human food space, and they may be very integrated. So if they're doing something in their human food space, maybe plant-based, cell-based meat, then it stands to reason how they would want to see, is it an option to go into pet food as well? There's one option that has Dana particularly intrigued. I'm kind of excited to learn more about the insect-based protein. You know, once you get past the ick factor, you kind of think about it. It could be farmed and doesn't compete for human food, doesn't compete in renewable fuel right now. (laughs) There's a lot more call and a lot more interest in it over the last year, specifically out of COVID. Because of the supply chain problems and new competition for the key ingredients, the U.S. pet food industry may have to rethink what's on the raw ingredient list and how they can source those reliable and sustainable ingredients. Now, elsewhere in the world, that change is already upon us. In 2018, Europe permitted certain insects to be used in pet food and fish feed, and that's where Rachel Conte got on board. We work with three uh, three factories in France, the Netherlands, uh, and and Germany. Can I stop just a minute? Close close the door because there is my cat playing. (laughs) Rachel is the co-founder of Intoma Pet Food, an insect-based pet food company. For years, she worked in agriculture and finance 
And as a pet owner, she saw a huge potential in bugs. The main reason we have chosen is for the nutritional values. The insects have an amino acid content that it's very rich. Uh, they have a very high content of protein. It's actually similar to shrimps in terms of uh, protein level. There is also fatty acids such as omegas. You will have vitamins like D. Uh, e. That is right. Entoma uses mealworms and black soldier fly larvae, and they are nutritious. It's important to remember that insects have also been consumed by humans in countries throughout Asia, Africa, and Europe for a very long time and are often considered a delicacy. But they also solve a number of supply chain problems. First, the insects used in pet food grow fast. They are actually used for production when they have 15 to 20 days of, of maturity. So it's very short. Just 15 to 20 days. Even chicken is going to have a hard time competing with that life cycle. And while they're being grown, often on farms powered by renewable energy, they feed on vegetable scraps that would otherwise be thrown out. Like skin of potatoes, of beetroots. Insect growers are buying from actually sugar industry, agro-industry. All the, the vegetables would have been thrown away. And all the water they need is also in those vegetables. And when the insects reach maturity... They are pressed to have the, the solid uh, out of the... They're taking out the liquid and we keep the, the solid to do the, the extrusion process. What's left is processed into a kind of powder, which is then used to make the food. And then the rest of the insect is used as fertilizer and even in some cosmetics. Almost nothing gets thrown away. So that's also part of the eco-friendly process of the insect growing. That eco-friendly part is it's not a small thing. As I mentioned earlier, almost a quarter of meat agriculture goes towards pet food. And the carbon footprint of the meat supply chain, especially beef, is massive. The meat and dairy industries account for almost 15% of all man-made greenhouse gas emissions. Bugs just do not have that same impact. In fact, you can see that insects will consume more than 100 times less of CO2 than growing uh, beef. That's 100 times less carbon dioxide gas than producing beef. The environmental upsides are an important part of the reason entrepreneurs like Rachel and governments like France and Holland are investing in insect-based foods. Rachel hopes that government initiatives will help drive down the cost of producing insect food because right now it's still really expensive. It's the most expensive animal protein you will find. It's, it's better year on year, to be honest, but I think in the coming year it should decrease. The fact is mass producing insects for food is still new and they're still trying to get it right. Today, they are really investing in research and development to make uh, good food, and tomorrow they will do it uh, to, to have it profitable. That's really the, their goal. At the moment, cost is one of the major hurdles. Another, getting some consumers who aren't used to thinking of insects as food past their ick factor. For Rachel, it comes down to education. It doesn't bring disease. Uh, it's even more nutritious. And it's also like when you are taking a, a dog and a cat, uh, what would they eat in the nature? Do you think like a cat will go to, uh, to, to, <laughs> to the river to catch salmon? Like in the nature, they will eat insects. 
So given all the benefits of insect-based food, it's a reliable source of protein, there's a sustainable supply chain, is there a chance that it can become a staple of human food as well? So this is something I tried personally in the salad and so on. It, it have a good taste. I think we will see more and more startups uh, serving and proposing uh, not really gastronomic food, I think, but uh, probably nutritional food like smoothie, for example, or protein bars. Or flour for baking. Insect-based human food may become a hit in years to come, but for now, companies like Rachel's are focusing on the pet food market, and she only sees that market growing. If you want the food of the future, you will have to bring uh, better ingredients, uh, better nutritional value, and that a product doesn't harm the planet. Good, reliable, nutritious ingredients produced close to home well, they lighten the load of the supply chain and the environment, freeing up oils and fats for biodiesel. All of that sounds like a really promising future. Insect-based pet food sales were expected to hit $7 billion globally in 2021 and are projected to reach over $17 billion in the next decade. But would Tiger, you know, the cat that we heard at the beginning of the program, would Tiger give them a try? Well, her owner, David Saltz, is open to the idea. Personally, what, what would I think about feeding it to her? I, if it had the nutrition she wanted and she liked to eat it, I, I wouldn't have to think any deeper than that. I mean, I've actually, believe it or not, got a whole rest of my life to live um, that doesn't involve cat food. So if she's liking it and it's healthy, you got two thumbs up from me. The pet food shortage wasn't just about pet food. It was about our food as well. When our eating habits shifted during the pandemic, they triggered a cascade of changes that affected the raw materials. That's the cuts of meat that were available to the pet food industry. When you combine that with a surge in demand, factory and processing plant shutdowns, transportation and extreme weather, you put a lot of pressure on an already fragile supply chain. And then there's the increased competition, you know, for the key ingredients, those oils and fats from the growing biodiesel industry. All of it has been a wake up call and it's forcing innovation that may help us solve some other looming problems like global warming and food insecurity. We'll be talking much more about that on our next and final episode of the season, how climate change is affecting the supply chain. I'm Sonarin Glinton, and this is Now What's Next, an original podcast from Morgan Stanley. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>